On September 19, 1990, prominent Colombian journalist Francisco Santos Calderon was riding home from work in his bulletproof car through some side streets of Bogota when the unthinkable happened. We always took the side streets and in one of the side streets, two cars blocked us, one in front of our car, another behind. And um, my driver that was killed froze. And I looked at him and he didn't know what to do. And if you lose those first 10 seconds, you can't evade being taken out. I looked to the other side of the window. There was one person with a machine gun and another with a, a tool that's used to break rocks. So they knew I was in a bulletproof car, so they were going to take me out. I opened the door. I got kidnapped. They put some, uh, some glasses uh, painted with nail polish so that I couldn't see them. They took me inside the car, but before I got inside the car, I heard three ping, 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 and, and, and the machine gun had a silencer. They had killed my, uh, my driver. Hello, everyone. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Francisco Santos, or Pacho Santos, as he's known to everyone, soon learned that he had been kidnapped by none other than Pablo Escobar, head of the notorious Medellin drug cartel. Santos, who comes from a prominent multi-generational family of journalists and politicians, was held hostage for eight months as a pawn to pressure the Colombian government against extraditing Escobar and other Medellin cartel leaders, known as the extraditables, to the United States. Santos's story and those of nine other journalists and elites kidnapped by Escobar that year became the acclaimed work of nonfiction, News of a Kidnapping, by Colombian novelist and Nobel Prize winner Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I am so delighted to welcome Pacho Santos, journalist, human rights advocate, former vice president of Colombia, and the former Colombian ambassador to the United States. Pacho, welcome to When It Mattered. Chita, welcome. Thank you for, for having me in your podcast. So you come from a very prominent and distinguished Colombian publishing and political family. Tell us a little bit about your pedigree and background, because it matters very much to the story. Yes, my family owned a newspaper. used to own the newspaper. It was sold in 2007 called El Tiempo, probably the biggest newspaper in Colombia. We've been a family of journalists. My grandfather was a journalist. My father was a journalist. My uncle was a journalist, I was a journalist, my brother was a journalist, everybody in the family was a journalist. But also uh, as, as something very different from, from many of the Latin American countries, there is, there is a story of, of politics and newspapering in Colombia. A lot of members of newspapers and, and, and media in Colombia became presidents, Andres Pastrana, my great grand uncle Eduardo Santos, uh, my cousin Juan Manuel Santos. Uh, so that's something that, that is very usual in this country and uh, and that's what my family has been. I'm a journalist at heart. I love journalism. I ended up as being vice president just because of everything that happened in my life. And it was, I would say it was a, a casual thing, but uh, always, always I've been a journalist and I think like a journalist. Yes, I've, I was a journalist for 20 years and you know, once a journalist, always a journalist, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It never leaves your blood. So you were the editor-in-chief of your family newspaper when you were kidnapped one morning on that side street west of Bogota. Tell us what happened. Yes, uh, Pablo Escobar was kidnapping. As a matter of fact, I was going to be kidnapped four months earlier. I was able to hold, uh, 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 got a hold of some information before, so I left uh, for Miami. Five days after I was leaving in Miami, I said, oh, hell, I got to go back. I went back. I forgot about it. Um, I had a bulletproof car. I had just finished uh, working at the newspaper 
uh, that uh, night. My last call was to another journalist because nobody knew where some journalists had disappeared. And my last call was to another journalist. And I said, look, I know that Pablo Escobar has those journalists that we're looking for. And I have only one source. And I said to her, do you have two sources because I want to publish it? And she said, no, I only have one source. And I think it's probably the same one as you have. So I didn't publish it. I got off my office. I went uh, into my car. My driver then it was not the one that was trained how to use a, a, a bulletproof car, which, which helps you just uh, evade uh, when they shoot you. Uh, he was resting and, um, and I left. Like We always took the side streets and in one of the side streets, two cars blocked us, one in front of our car, another behind. And um, my driver that was killed froze. And I looked at him and he didn't know what to do. And if you lose those first 10 seconds, you can't evade being taken out. I looked to the other side of the window. There was one person with a machine gun and another with a, a tool that's used to break rocks. So they knew I was in a bulletproof car, so they were going to take me out. I opened the door. I got kidnapped. They put some, uh, some glasses painted with nail polish so that I couldn't see them. They took me inside the car, but before I got inside the car, I heard three ping, 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 and, and, and the machine gun had a silencer. They had killed my, uh, my driver, Oromancio. They took me inside a room. Somebody with a, a hood came in and said, uh, and asked him, uh, in whose hands am I? And he said to me, in whose hands do you want to be? And I said, I know I'm in the hands of Paulo Spohr. And he said, yes, you are. And that's when I started my eight months and some days of kidnapping. Wow. Now, so let's just back up a little bit before we go into what happened when once you were taken into captivity. Escobar had very good reason to be really unhappy with you, along with other journalists, many of whom were actually writing without bylines because it was so dangerous at that time to write about these drug cartels. And you had been writing a column and you were very, very tough on him and other drug traffickers, right, at the, around that period. Yes, yes, I was very tough. I remember before I published my columns, always uh, sending them to my cousin, an older cousin. He's a really smart guy. And he just said, oh, my God, why do you write that? Remember that an, object, an adjective that doesn't give life kills. And um, I was very, very tough. Uh, uh, look, it, it was a point in time when in Colombia you would be a journalist and you left home and you didn't know if you were going to come back. But I've always been a, a free spirit. I've always known uh, that uh, having the possibility of fighting for for what's right uh, is what you have to do. I think journalists, that's what, journalism, that's what I love the most about journalism. And, and I really thought, and I really still think that drug trafficking is the biggest cancer of our societies. And I was very, very, very tough. And, and he knew that by kidnapping me, he would pressure my family, a very important family. He would silence other journalists. He would pressure the government. And, 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 and I guess that's why he, tar he had targeted me once before. And then afterwards, six months afterwards, when when he finally did it. Yeah, and, and violence was no stranger to your family. You actually had uh, one of your relatives, your brother-in-law, I think, killed uh, by um, uh, Escobar. Yes, I, I remember in, in 1988, 89, when, when the drug violence was horrific, I got together, we were together in a family meeting with my brothers, my sisters, wives, and I said, you, you know, this, is, this hasn't touched us. When will it be? You know, I, I think we're, uh, we're next. Uh, I didn't know that. A few months later, my, my sister's husband died in the plane where Escobar put a bomb, the Avianca airplane. And um, 
And just uh, one year later, I was kidnapped by him. So, so I was right. And now you see, when you understand how Colombia was at that time, it was absolutely clear that we had to be a target. Yeah, I mean, it was such an incredibly hostile environment. And just to give a little bit of background, and uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez really describes this really well in his book, News of a Kidnapping, there's these growing hostilities between the cartels and the Colombian government that had been brewing since the late 1980s uh, because of this Colombian-U.S. treaty that allowed drug dealers to get extradited to Col from Colombia to the U.S. to face incredibly harsh sentences, right? So this was sort of the background against which this happened. And so what these drug dealers were forced to do was basically, as as Marquez says in his book, they, they went underground fugitives in their own country, he says. The great irony was that their only alternative was to place themselves under the protection of the state to save their own skins. And so they attempted by persuasion and by force to obtain that protection by engaging in indiscriminate, merciless terrorism, and at the same time, by offering to surrender to the authorities and bring home and invest their capital in Colombia on the sole condition that they not be extradited. And he described them as an authentic shadow power with a brand name, the extraditable. So, and, and he described the slogan that Escobar had, we prefer a grave in Colombia to a cell in the United States. And it is against that landscape that you became one of the pawns in Escobar's uh, and the extraditable's chess game with the Colombian government not to be extradited. Obviously, and, and look, look how crazy I was because when when we spoke preparing for this idea and it was going to be a 10 minute conversation and ended up being a, a two hour conversation, I just said, oh my God. Uh, a few months before I was kidnapped, that was probably June, Escobar was killing a policeman in Medellin paying like, a, I don't remember what the, the, the number was, $1,000, $2,000. And more than 500 policemen had been killed in less than a month. And I said, look, I'm a editor of El Tiempo. I need to find out how a city lives under that fear. So I went to Medellin with the secretary of government of the city. They said, why don't you take me around and, and look at, uh, at how this feels? And we went around some of the most difficult places of Medellin. I saw, I talked to people, et cetera. And then that night after dinner, I said, now is when we got to do it. I said, are you crazy? And I said, no, this is when you can really see what's happening. And we went out. It was just him, me, and the driver. And all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, a, a group of policemen go around us, stop the car, point their guns at it, tells us, tells, tells us, you know, get out of the car, get on the floor, saying, we've got to kill them. These other guys are killing us. It was... It was a, a paranoia, understandable, by the way. And, and the guy that was with me said, no, 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 don't kill me, don't kill me. Look, I am the secretary of, of government of Medellin. You are not, you're a, you're a sicario, you're going to kill us. And said, here, look in my pocket. And they said, and I said, oh my God, yes, you are. Please excuse us. Look, you, you know how paranoid we are. And we went around and it was so scary, that city. It was so, it was, it was like ghosts were, were all over the city. And at four o'clock in the morning, we finished our round and I went to a bar in one of the toughest neighborhoods in Medellin. And, and I go into the bar and we're with, the, with ties and suits and a couple of guys that were there say, oh, the music, uh, the music, the, the musicians just arrived. And we, we, we laughed, we started drinking and I said, I gotta talk to those guys. And then I went, I went to them and I said, hi, Hawaii. And the guy tells, tells to me, you don't know who I am? 
And I said, no, I don't. And do you, do you know who I am? I said, no, I don't. And he said, I am this guy Prisco, the head of the biggest gang that Escobar used to kill journalists and everything. And I said, and you want to know who I am? Who? Francisco Santos of El Tiempo. And he just said, what the hell are you doing here? He was like, you know, he admired that I was there and, and, and we ended up chatting in his life and all that. And like at five o'clock in the morning, we left. He was the head of the organization that kidnapped me. Uh, uh, and that was three months before. So, so, uh, so this is, has been my life, my life uh, as a journalist, which is what always inspires me. Uh, I'm, I've always been curious and, and, and to be very sincere, I've also been very irresponsible. <laughs> Yeah, you were irresponsible, but also careful because Marquez says in his book, tell me if this is true, that you kept your movements, you had kept your movements so unpredictable and irregular that that's why Escobar couldn't kidnap you for four months, though he had been trying, and that this was a similar strategy that had prevented your father from being kidnapped by M19, the guerrilla movement, 15 years earlier. You know, there's an anecdote. You know what my, what my uh, kidnappers call me? The ghost because I would get into the car and drive and change directions. And there was a red light and I would say, go. And, and, and the driver would, would, uh, would go through the red light. They crashed twice following me. They told me that afterwards. Uh, uh, so, so it was, I didn't know they, were, they wouldn't follow me, but they were, they had a lookout post right outside my house, right near the newspaper. So yeah, and, 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 and I was a ghost, I guess. So, but on that day, you, they succeeded. So they kidnap you and where do they take you next? Tell us what happened next. Well, they take me to this, to this house. They, they put me in a border room, small room. They gave me a, 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 a radio. My, my soccer team was, was playing and I heard that. And I said, why don't you give me something to drink? They gave me a bottle of Aguardiente and I drank it like in two minutes. <laughs> uh, I went to sleep. And, uh, and that's when it started. It was in, in, in Bogota, near a very big uh, uh, brewery company, because I could hear the, the alarm of, of the change of, uh, of working uh, rotation. So it used to go at 6, at 2, and at 10 o'clock. And I knew I was near, uh, so I knew I was in Bogota. Now, is it true that the, the guys who kidnapped you did it in a big hurry, because not because of security concerns, but they wanted to get back to a big soccer game? Well, there was, there, no, 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 uh, no, no, that's, I, I, I don't know that. Uh, but they were very professional. They, uh, they knew what they were doing and, and they, uh, they understood the, uh, uh, the importance of sending the message by killing the driver. There was no need to kill the driver. They killed it, but they needed to send a message. And uh, during those times that I was uh, in captivity, I, uh, the only time I saw any lapse in security was when when one of the guys left uh, a machine gun in the room when he left, I always had somebody 24 hours a day with me with the hood and he left. The, and during those 10 minutes when I had that machine gun right on my feet because I was chained to a bed, I said, look, I can get this machine gun, start shooting and this is it, it's over. But then I realized that I couldn't kill a human being. So after like 15 minutes, I tell to the guy because he didn't, he, he, he didn't come back obviously. And I said, come on. Get this thing out of my, don't put those temptations on me, on, on me, come and take it. And he came in and he was pale. I could see it in his eyes and the word. He was so pale and, um, and that was that. 
So what was your life like during those eight months? What were the rules of the house uh, and how afraid were you? You were married, you had two little kids. What was your mental state of mind? Look, I, I, I never thought I was going to survive. I knew I was dead. So I built a huge wall, emotional wall to not think about my, my, my wife, my kids, my, my dad, my family, up to the point where it was such a tough barrier that I built around me that a few months later, um, they, in the newspaper, and they used to bring me sometimes the newspaper, sometimes they would allow, allow me to see television, they would bring television, and I would see three, four hour television. And uh, they bring me a newspaper, I look at it, and then I'm, I'm throwing it out. And I said, wait, 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 wait. There was a magazine and I looked at it, I had looked at it. And in the front page was my wife and my kids. And I had skimmed over it. I hadn't seen them. So, so, so that was my first decision. My second decision uh, uh, was try to survive every day. And, and, and you start creating a routine in which you wake up and you say, is this going to be my last day? And you go to sleep and you're going to, you go to sleep thinking, it is going to be my, my last night. Uh, I, uh, I uh, as immediately as I knew that Escobar was, was, had kidnapped me, I told the guys, tell him I need these books. And I gave him a, a list like of 100 books I wanted to read. They brought them to me. So I read them like three or three times. They, they, they would uh, allow me to hear radio. And I would hear radio uh, a lot. And I did a lot of math equations and things like that in my head. I wrote columns, like if I had still been a journalist and a, and, a, and a columnist, when I knew that a few days before I knew there was going to be free, I, I started rereading them and I knew that they weren't being written under absolute freedom. So I, I touched them. I threw them on the, on, the, on the bathroom, but it was survival day in and day out and wait. And what you realize is that survival of the fittest really, really, really works. Because look, I'm allergic. You can hear me, I'm coughing and all that. I'm very allergic. During those eight months, I didn't have anything. And, and it was a filthy room. And I didn't get a cold. And, and, and then you realize how the human evolution and the capacity of adaptation of, of the human being is that in such tough environments, you can survive physically. Uh, emotionally, it was uh, a sort of, living in a vacuum and just taking care of one minute after the other. What was your relationship with the guards? It was really good. Look, I'm a journalist. I started talking to them. I taught one to read. And I remember, <laughs> I remember after he started reading all that, and he knew, he knew the basics, but he was having difficulty. And, and I gave him a book by uh, Clear and Present Danger. That's about Escobar. And he read it and, some, and he comes in and said, is this going to happen? No, this is because it, it, it's, it's, it's about uh, a spy that helps take down a, a drug cartel in Colombia. And, and, and it, it talks about technology. And I said, don't worry. Uh, we're not there yet, but we will. Uh, and another one, I started writing with the, with the, with the mom. I don't know why. He, he was the one who became closest to me. He was probably the most, uh, uh, with the most humility. Uh, he told me about his story uh, and why he had ended up being there, et cetera. And he lived with his mom. And I said, can I write to your mom? And I said, yes. And I wrote to her. And they used to go back to Medellin every two weeks, I think, or three weeks. And all of a sudden, her mom writes me back. 
And we started having a, a conversation, I, I guess, and or a relationship. And all of a sudden, this guy calls to Medellin and comes back and tells me, look what you did. And I said, what? I didn't do anything. You're riding with my mom. My mom threw me out of the house. And I said, why? Because she said, oh, you let him free or you don't come back. And he was telling me, if I let him free, they're going to kill me, which they actually did afterwards because Escobar killed all of them. And it was fun. It was funny. And, and, I, and, and I saw the worst of the human being, the best of the human beings. I saw humanity at, at its black and white. There was one of the guys who was such a murderer. I remember he would come back from Medellin and he would tell me the stories of how many he had killed that, uh, that weekend. Uh, he almost shot uh, one of the ladies that gave me food. The other guy told me, and he shot her, but but the gun the gun um, uh, stuck, and, and so she was able to flee with his kid, with his mom's, uh, uh, his his kid's mom. Uh, that's that's what kind of animal he was. So it was an experience. Wow, yeah. And you said that you, you get you get me you get me talking, Chief Trump. Why? <laughs> you know, I've I've spoken very little about this. I've spoken so little about this. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for trusting me with your story. You said something sad that none of these guards uh, had fathers, that they had been, you know, abandoned them for the criminal lifestyle. And it's kind of sad that in the end, Escobar also ended up killing these guards, you know? So it's it's a circle of uh, absolute evil, right? Not necessarily, not all evil. There was a lot of life in it. There was a lot of love in it. There was a lot of moments in it, but their life, was around evil. Their life was killing people. Their life was, uh, because they were, they were what, what in Colombia we call sicarios, hitmen. But you know, in those months I could see the, the humanity inside. I could see why they became that. I could see the troubled lives. I could see the violence. I could see the, the abuse. I, I saw many things that, uh, that, that sometimes in, in black and white uh, and in cases you can't see. So. And that was a privilege because I was a journalist living inside the belly of the beast. I was. And, and, and I saw other, other, other elements of that beast that uh, helped me understand why they, those guys ended up uh, uh, doing what they're doing. It doesn't mean that I agree with it. It doesn't mean that uh, I'm for it, etc. But I saw how easy richness with no dad, with abuses, with a mom that... Uh, and, and they used to have a, a, a great saying, saying, mom, there's only one father can be any son of a bitch. They used to say that. So there was a, a relationship and there was a, a way of seeing life that, uh, that I was able to understand, although didn't share. Now, you were kidnapped in September. In October, you sent a, a message to your president. What did you say? I said, look, this guy doesn't understand that journalism and media are opposites, that we are in a clash. Uh, obviously, uh, I understand my family's history and understand this. And look, please do whatever you can to free us, but don't forget that you just a few months ago <laughs> swore to upheld the constitution and the law, and that's what you have to do. And I repeated that twice. And uh, I knew afterward because I had no connection that a lot of people were very impressed. Uh, one of the best caricaturists—I don't know uh, how you call it—did a fantastic uh, picture of me in black and say, "Faith and dignity," which was my great grandfather's uh, motto uh, during his presidential campaign. When Escobar talked to the priest who was ready to who helped release me, 
he said, this guy's a warrior. He had sort of an armadation and, and, and he told, look, this is the only, I can't believe he said that. And it's because I, I never buckled up. I never asked for anything. I understood uh, that, that my life wasn't mine and that I wasn't going to, to budge to, uh, to whomever had my life in his hands. And, I, and that's how I've lived my whole life. I, I don't uh, negotiate my thoughts, my beliefs, and my, and my thinking. Now, you never did meet Pablo Escobar during those entire eight months, just his guards. Well, he wrote me a letter. Like two weeks before, before they were going to release me, I got a letter. And I said, nah, this is not Escobar because, uh, and he said, yes, it is, it is. And, and he said, you got to burn it after you read it. I read it and he said that he, that, you know, that he had to, that I had to understand. It was so, look, I'm an editor. I used to return my wife's letters edited <laughs> when I was studying at the university. That's how detailed I am. And I couldn't edit a comma of that thing he wrote. It was written perfectly. And that's my only, my only relationship with him. I burned it. After I, after I was released and he gave himself up in jail, he said, I'm only going to give one interview to Francisco Santos. And I was ready to go. And president, and I think it was a mistake that I didn't do it. Uh, uh, I was in a fragile state of mind, obviously, but, but President Gaviria, when I told him, look, I want to do it, he said, look, this will never come out well. If you do a soft interview, you will be, a pan, uh, you will be uh, accused of it. If you do a very tough interview, he will kill you next time. So it sounded like a pretty, a pretty sound advice, uh, so I didn't do it. You regret that. I regret it. I regret it, totally. I would have loved. Look, I interviewed one of the big guys later when I was, when I was in, in, in the radio. I went to the jail and I interviewed Popeye, the biggest hitman he had to his side. He's the only one who survived. He recently he, he, he died. And I go into the jail and he's coming back. And you know what he says? He says, wow, I'm seeing a ghost. And I said, why Popeye, why are you seeing that? Because you should have been dead so many years ago. That's how our conversation started. And I loved every second of it. <laughs> well, what did Pablo Escobar say to you in his letter to you that was so perfectly written? No, he, I, I don't remember very well, but why he had done this. He was, he, was a, he was a good politician, that he was going to free me, that he wanted a better country. You know, it was a little bit more political than anything else but very well written. So even, uh, even though he held you hostage as a journalist and editor, you admired his writing. <laughs> I couldn't edit that word, of course. Of course. Look, believe me, believe me, believe me. If I had seen a coma well, that wasn't well-placed, I would have changed it. And I read it like three times because I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. So it was fun. <laughs> but you had a very dark period uh, when you found out initially that Potentially, you were going to get killed, so it wasn't. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. You you didn't have your spirits up the whole time. There was a no, 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 no. No, you you go up and you go down. You go up and you go down. Uh, you have your your good day. You have your bad days. Uh, somebody was always in my dreams. And that's something that 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 was with me in my two periods where I uh, where I my life was very much at risk. And she would in the night come to my dreams and and help me understand what I was living and help me live the, a, 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 I think it was either my mother, the Virgin Mary, which would protect me. I'm, I'm Catholic. Uh, 
uh, and she would soothe my, my spirit. And in January, when, when one of the heads of the sicarios of the Priscos, the guys that I had met in that bar were killed by the police, Escobar said, I'm gonna start killing hostages, one every four days. At that point in time, there were one, two, three, four, five, five of us. And I, um, I said, okay, I have 20 days to live because I thought oh, I'm gonna be the last one. Well, I wasn't the last one, I was gonna be the first one. Gabriel Garcia Marquez found out that the, the sister of one of the biggest, the other family of big drug traffickers in Colombia found out that I was gonna be the first one to be killed. And he looked for Escobar and said, don't do it. If you kill him first, we're all dead. And, he, and, and that changed his mind. One of the guys that I had a, the best relation, which was probably the smartest one, I used to play chess with him, but he had left like three months before. Uh, I told him, the only thing I want from you is to be honest with me. When, when I'm gonna be killed, you tell me. And he came that day and he said, look, the shit hit the fan. We're gonna kill this one, this first lady on Thursday. Then we're gonna kill this one on Sunday. Then we're gonna, so, so he gave me all the pictures and said, okay. I have 20 days to live. That Saturday, they gave me the television and all of a sudden I hear that in a rescue attempt, two of those hostages had been killed. Uh, no, one was rescued and the other one had been killed. The daughter of, of a former president that was a journalist too, uh, uh, Diana Turbay. And uh, I said, okay, my lifespan has been cut short from 20 days to 10 days. Um, I was ready to die. That changed the next Tuesday when, uh, when uh, the government said, okay, we're ready to, to, to see if, if you want to give up. We had nothing to do with, I had nothing to do with, my family had nothing to do with. And that was that. And, and, and my other really dark period was when I, I was, I got tired and I said, I'm going to finish with this. And I had taken out the razor blade. I took them out. I put them on side, outside my, uh, underneath my, the, the couch. And I said, okay, this Sunday, I'll just, he goes to sleep. I'll just cut my, uh, and I'll die. No, no big deal. And that Sunday, they bring me the newspaper. They didn't used to bring me the newspaper every day. They brought me the, the paper that Sunday. And all of a sudden, I read a column from my, the personal priest, the family priest saying, don't kill yourself. And he says, it's not your life. And I was blown away and I said, okay, this is a pretty big message. I'd rather, I'd rather not go through with this or I'm going to hell. And when I was out, the first thing I asked my dad, well, two things I asked my dad. My dad told me, oh, I'm so glad you're back. They told me that you were, you were in a farm, that you could uh, swim in a pool and walk. And I said, no, dad, I, wasn't, I, was in a, I was in a house chained to a bed. And he, he, after that moment, he was 20 years older. It's amazing how people can change in seconds. And then I asked him, dad, when did you, why did you publish his column? Talk to me about this. And he said, look, I had kept it for three weeks because he was so harsh on Escobar because he was a tough priest he, uh, and he hated the, uh, the violence and he was so tough that I said, why, why, why risk my kid's life? And then I published it because he insisted. And I told him the story and I told him, if you had published one week before or one week after, uh, I would have been dead. And I told him what had happened and he just became pale. So. So those are stories of, of power, politics, luck, God, the Virgin, uh, that were part of my, and that are part of my existence. So why were you released? And, and what was that day like, the 21st of May, 1991? 
Look, Escobar was able to bribe a big part of the Constituent Assembly that was now sessioning, and he knew that he got the votes to prohibit extradition. So he decided to give me up before that and give the last two of us up before they voted the non-extradition. They put me a, a, a television on a Sunday night, and I'm saying, oh, the extraditables are announcing the release of those two guys. And they were leaving, we're leaving. Said, no, 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 no. The other guy said, no, wait. Until somebody from Medellin comes here to Bogota, to the city, we're not releasing you, okay? That night, I slept, not too much. Next morning comes, this guy says, get ready, ta -ta -ta orders. He talks to me and said, look, this is how it's gonna come through. Uh, the Maruja Pachon is going to be out at uh, 6.30 so that he gets into the seven o'clock news. You're going to be out at eight o'clock so that you can be in the nine o'clock news. And uh, that's it, okay, bye-bye. And then they put me in a car, old car. They said, read this book like you're reading, don't look up. Obviously I looked up. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, look, the, our orders are that you have to be out alive, no matter what happens. And if anything happens, we will open the door, we will come out shooting, and you bend and go underneath the car. They gave me instructions on how to survive. And all of a sudden, I knew where we were, and I knew we were in front of a police station in a red light. And the car all of a sudden goes out. And I said, oh, my God. And I could hear the guy turning around. Mm, mm, I said, and, the, and those guys were so nervous. He said, look, you ready? You ready? They said, yes, I'm ready. And after one minute and all the cars honking around us because it was a main highway uh, 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 or a very main street, uh, the car ran again, took me some blocks. I went out. They gave me some money for, uh, for the taxi. No taxi would stop until one stopped. And, and, and I opened the door. I told him, please take me to freedom. And he says, oh, Mr. Santos, I can't believe it. I'm going to take you to. And then he was taking me home. I, I gave him the money, which was 20,000 pesos. And at that time was a lot of money. He said, uh, and I told him, look, you're going to have your 15 minutes of fame. When you drop me, don't drive. Stay there. Obviously, he had his 15 minutes of fame. He said that, that he, he, he gave me the ride home for free, which was a total lie. <laughs> <laughs> Smart man. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and there were so many journalists and everybody waiting for me at home. And, and that's when I got back to freedom. And you came out of this experience and, you know, became a human rights advocate for kidnapping victims. And you had a pretty big effect. Tell me about the group you founded and what impact that it had. Yeah, I created an NGO with my wife called the uh, Free Country. We had more than 3,000 kidnappings. Uh, we, uh, 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 I wrote the column. I went back immediately to write my column. They, they wanted me to, to uh, 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 the Neiman offered me a fellowship at Harvard and I didn't want to go to Harvard. I wanted to go back to work. I finally ended up going to Harvard. Um, but in, 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 that, uh, in that period, I created this NGO because I wrote a column about my life and how much this has hurt, had hurt my family. And I got so many letters of people saying nobody's helping us. We don't know how to manage this. We are in such a dire situation. We're losing everything. It was horrible. And I, and I created this NGO to help people through a kidnapping and help the families especially. And that became the other part of my life. I, I used to work in the newspaper between nine o'clock and, uh, and six o'clock or seven o'clock. And I used to work at an NGO at, from six o'clock in the morning to, to nine o'clock and from six, seven o'clock in the morning and at night until 10. And we, we did so many things. We helped so many families. 
We learned so much. We created the first anti-kidnapping law uh, uh, passed by, by signatures. And that's how it was presented to Congress. The only law which, which the new constitution allowed to do. And it became part of my life. Freedom became part of my life, helping. Uh, you know, when you're a journalist, it's great because a lot of the times you're seeing the, you know, the, the bullfight from the seats. Not anymore. I was, I was bullfighting. I was down there and my cause was freedom and helping those who, who had lost. And you were able to bring the kidnapping rates down from what to what? Well, not, not, not at first. And it was very frustrating because as a civil society, we, could, we had an impact. We did ads to really put the kidnappers in, in the worst uh, scenario, political scenario, but it, they kept rising. And, and in 1996, a lady came in, uh, we were in a, in a board meeting at the, at, the, at the NGO and said, look, my husband has been kidnapped by the FARC for one year. I wanna do something. And I was so frustrated that I said, I wanna do something for my husband. She said, and I said, no, we're gonna do something for all of the kidnappings. And in the middle of this, horrible violence then by the FARC and the ELN and the paramilitaries, I decided to, to do some uh, marches, uh, huge protest marches. Everybody thought I was crazy. And all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of people in five cities come out. Just with no money, with you just tell them, come out, we're going to do this, we want to protest this. And there were like 200,000 in Bogota, like 200,000 in Medellin, and like 150,000 in Cali. And and from then on, another life in me became a, a born and it was, you can move people, you have to move people. If you wanna get things done, it's not only you, it has to be through people. And after that, uh, we did a vote for peace that got more than 10 million votes as an NGO. Then the ELN kidnaps a church and kidnaps a plane. And we go back to protest in a, in a, in a protest movement called No More based on what was happening in Spain. And we were able to get millions of Colombians out, millions. And we were doing these protests in the middle of a peace process with the FARC, between a pastoral government and the FARC. And the FARC decided, oh, these protests aren't good for us. I, I need to kill it. And they were going to kill me. So that the head of the intelligence in the Colombian police came to my house and told me, look, the FARC is going to kill you. They just hired this group, uh, this front did it, this uh, far front uh, has done this, etc. And I said, how do you know it? And they said, uh, uh, it's because the CIA has infiltrated that group and by law, they, they, they have to tell the person who's going to be hurt that they're going to be hurt. And, and so I, uh, I changed my lifestyle. I kept with the protests. Uh, we kept doing, you know, lots of uh, a, on streets activism, very, very tough and very hard, harsh against the FARC, the ELN, the paramilitaries. And one day, you know, I, I changed my whole life routine. I would go only to the, from the newspaper to my house and from my house to the newspaper in a bulletproof car with bodyguards. And in the middle of that, I said to the driver, turn left. I said, where are we going? I'm not telling you. Turn left. And when he turned left, another said, let's go to the farm, which I have a, I have a farm uh, one, one hour outside Bogota. And I said, I, I want to breathe air. We go there. I stopped at a place where I always stopped when, when, when I could to buy some uh, chorizos. And I decided not to eat them there. I, I decided to take them to the farm. I always used to, to eat them there. And two minutes afterwards, the lady calls me, the lady that I knew her very well and says, look, somebody just came here 
they said they're your bodyguards. They're not your bodyguards. I know your bodyguards. They came, they have big weapons. They, they're telling me where you are. I told them I didn't know. And they left. I think uh, they're, they're after you. The next day I left for exile for two years, first to Miami, then I lived in Spain and I worked El País, in El País, the, the biggest uh, Spanish speaking newspaper in, in Spain and probably in the world. And, and I was very happy for two years until I became vice president. <laughs> you served as vice president for eight years. What were your contributions at that time to fighting narco traffickers and reducing kidnappings? And, and do you think it had an impact? Look, I, I didn't want to be a vice president. I did, I, that wasn't my plan. I, I came, I remember I came to Colombia to extend my stay in Spain, to get some, uh, some work from Colombian television in Spain, etc. And all of a sudden, the candidate, Alvaro Uribe, calls me the day before and said, look, I want to talk to you because I have this problem with a journalist, Joe Contreras from Newsweek, and I don't know how to deal with this. Can you give me advice? And I said, sure. As a matter of fact, I'm going. I'm going to be go in Colombia. I arrived there on a Saturday morning, and we start talking. And he talks to me about this. I talk to him, and then he says to me, look, I have a problem because the, the, the person I, uh, I had as a vice president can't be because... Uh, the law doesn't allow it. I'm looking for vice president. What do you think about this? And I told him about this person and this person. He went look like through five names. And all of a sudden he looks at me and said, how about you? And I didn't hesitate. I said, yes. What the hell was I thinking? And what the hell was he thinking? I don't know. Very crazy decision. But that's how it became. He comes out. He tells his two advisors, look, I present you the new candidate for vice president, and they just flipped. And that's how my political career began. And did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it a lot. And, and I think I'm starting to think that my life and what God has written for me is a fight for freedom. And I became an advocate for that. And we reduced kidnappings from 3,000 to less than 50, up to a point where, where the NGO, I closed the NGO. We closed the NGO. It wasn't needed anymore. There were practically no kidnappings. The state had adapted. So, so I guess it's not a coincidence. Just that I was here, I think it was part of my destiny. I worked in human rights too because I became, when I became an activist, I started seeing all the other things that were happening. And, and one part of my job was helping protect the labor leaders, protect social leaders and and we did a hell of a job in that. Uh, Colombia was totally different in 2002 than from 2010, even though we were an authority government. We, we, we understood very well that authority was the number one issue in Colombia, but, but we needed to protect everybody. So I loved it. I learned so much. Public service is amazing. If, 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 if I had to do it again, I would. And part of my life and part of my life, uh, my, my, my history was being part of that, uh, which I consider is the best, one of the best uh, governments in Colombia's history. But not because of that, because of what we were able to do for people being more free. And, and looking back after our conversation, I realized, wow, my life in the end was fighting for freedom, for individual freedom, for collective freedoms. And, and my job as vice president, was a big part of that. So what are you doing now? Afterwards, I went back to journalism. 
actually, I uh, I was fired from my job of journalism because I was very tough against the, the next government, which was headed by my cousin. <laughs> you were fired by your cousin? No, I was I worked uh, in a journalism company that had other businesses, industrial businesses and all that. I used to do a four hour radio program every morning. And I was very tough because I thought that he wasn't doing things the right way. I thought the country that was going the right direction, they, they were, but it was journalism. And all of a sudden, uh, the owner of, of the company, Lenterson, look, I, uh, I think we're going to have to let you go because uh, they're putting some pressure, big pressure from us, from the government. And I said, I understand, don't worry about it. I didn't make a big deal. I didn't uh, did a scandal, you know, I left. I went back to a certain extent into politics. Uh, I was a candidate for the mayor of Bogota, which I think the local power is more important than anything a president can do. That's where you change really lives. And I was writing in, news, in newspapers. I still had a column. And in the year 2018, uh, then President uh, Iván Duque asked to see me and, and, and he says, uh, how's your relations with the US? And I said, look, because between 2002 and 2010, when I was vice president, I had to deal a lot with the U.S., a lot. I used to come and, and I used to, to travel to the U.S. 10, 20 times a year, uh, talk to senators, etc. And I said, look, my relation is very good, but uh, my knee pads are, uh, are gathering dust in my closet. And he said, uh, uh, you better bring your knee pads out because I want you to be my ambassador in Washington. And I took the knee pads and I went back. <laughs> And I loved it. I love being an ambassador. And, and, and one of the things, again, this is why our conversation was so illuminating for me. I realized that as ambassador of Colombia, I had to work for Venezuela, for the drama that the Venezuelans were living, to raise up the expectations of the freedom they were losing, the freedom to eat, the freedom to live, the freedom to work, the freedom to write, everything. The chaos was so big. So I worked very, very hard with the State Department and with the White House. And I started bringing congressmen from both parties to the border with Venezuela. And they saw firsthand the huge problem that Venezuela was. And that raised the profile of the Venezuelan issue in US politics. And I think that's, that was also part of my, my fight for freedom because the Venezuelans had lost it. And Venezuela became a cause of my life. And in that sense, I right after I came back, I'm doing a program on Venezuela, what's happening, uh, how they've lost all their all their uh, their possibilities. What can the world do? I'm not even doing anything regarding Colombia. I'm doing it because of Venezuela. And I got involved in another issue, which is China, Russia, and uh, Iran in Latin America, because I think they are a big threat to our freedoms, and uh, and and getting people to understand what they are and how we need to deal with them because they're a reality in, in, in this complex world in the early 21st century. Uh, it's also part of my story. So that's where I am now. Going back to your time when you were held hostage by Pablo Escobar and later Gabriel Garcia Marquez was uh, thinking about writing this book, which became News of a Kidnapping. He asked you to co-author the book, and you declined to do that. Why, why were you unhappy with, with Marquez? The first thing is that that was a very stupid decision on my part, too. <laughs> very, very dumb. 
But there was a reason. When we were all kidnapped, in all of the newscasting, in a, there were newscasts at 12 o'clock in the, in the morning, in the you know, midday, seven o'clock and nine o'clock. And before each of those television newscasts in Colombia, we had a, a two channels. They would put our pictures and say, you know, we want them free and, and intellectuals and, and people from all over Colombia said, you know, why do you have them? It was putting political pressure <clears throat> because I guess Escobar would laugh at it. The only guy who didn't accept that was Darwin. They told me that. And, and when he asked me, I said, no, I don't want to do that. You, you were not there for me. Why should I be with, there for you? I was young. I was stupid, to be very sincere. <laughs> so you're saying that all of the intellectuals in Colombia were speaking up to ask Escobar, to put pressure on Escobar to release you, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez was the only intellectual of note who didn't do that. Yes, exactly. That's what happened. And did you ever ask him? Yes, yes, I did. Yes, I, I asked him why. And he said, you know why? Because I wanted to, if it was necessary to use me as an intermediary, I did not want it to appear that I was on either of both sides. Good answer, but not enough, but not uh, good enough for me uh, at that time of, of hurt and of, um, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how you call it when you when you when you go out of uh, kidnapping. But it's a very oh god, it's a very difficult transition to go back to freedom. Very 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 difficult. You know, a honk in the car would send me up to the roof. The first night I I, I arrived, I couldn't sleep, and I started going all over around the the, the the house, and all of a sudden I saw in the house new paintings, this new sofa. Uh, so well kept. We wanted to build two showers so we could shower together. And we, that had been like a three-year uh, idea. And now it was, uh, and when my wife wakes up, I'm practically looking at it. How much do we owe? Are we broke? And she says to me, no, we don't know. And I even saved. From that day on, she manages everything. I don't even know what I have. I don't, I don't manage one cent in my life. They just put me some money in my wallet and that's how I live. Uh, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes your perspective. It changes your, your, your ability. It, it, it creates PST. I, I remember there were many, many years. I would wake up sweating, looking at the, at the roof of my bedroom and not seeing the gum that was in the room of the place where I was kidnapping, uh, I was kidnapped, that was in the, in the, in the roof, in the ceiling of, of my room. And then I would, and the same thing would happen when I was kidnapped. I would wake up, you know, happy that I was free. And the first thing I saw was that gum. And I said, shit, I'm still kidnapped. And that happened exactly at the, the other side of the coin happened when I was, when I was freed for many, many, many years. So did you um, ever cooperate with Gabriel Garcia Marquez for his book? Did you ever speak to him and tell him your story? Yes. After, after I went to the Neiman, he started writing the book. When I came back to the Neiman, he said, look, I can't do this book without you and, with, and without Maria Victoria. And so he spent, the book was already written. So he spent, I don't remember, like three or four days talking to us. And we spoke and spoke and spoke. And one night he said, come here, I'll invite you to a, 
a restaurant. We left for a restaurant. We got drunk. And he said, you know the house where you were? And I said, I know. Let's go find it. And we went to try to find it, and we did it <laughs> with him. So uh, I, we cooperated. That's why we're part of that book. Many of these stories that I have told you aren't there. But I haven't read it, to be very sincere, because I move on. And, and, and frankly, Chitra, this is not something I do very often. Well, thank you very much for telling me your story, uh, Pacho. Now, you know, one question I have is, well, two questions. One is, do you feel like you have gotten over that emotional trauma, that, that PTSD you were talking about? Yes. It took me many years to, 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 for, for those uh, nightmares to, to uh, never come back. And the emotional wall that I had built around me, it took many years to take it down too. I didn't even realize I had it until I, uh, I had a therapy. And then he said, look, this is your problem. And, and I understood it and, 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 and I took it down. So, so yeah, it, it, it leaves you and marks you. One of the things that we found out with, with Paisley, with the NGO and we're helping families is how much it changes the family dynamics. I told you the story of how my, my wife became the, the, the administrator of everything I have and everything we have. You see that lots of divorces uh, and the divorce comes because the person who's not kidnapped changes, changes dramatically. Women who, who, who were women of, you know, household, all of a sudden are in charge of companies that, and they do a hell of a job. And when the husband comes back, where does she fit or where does he fit? Those who stay behind are also victims, but yet the light is shown only on the person who was kidnapped. Not all of those who suffered day and night. A kidnapping is, is like having a funeral with no body. Imagine going to a funeral eight months or six months or three months. That's, that's tough. So, so those levels and those, uh, that view of, of, of different hurt, it's, it's, it's not easy to, to walk through or to get over. And, and, so, and so you see that family dynamic all over changing. And, and kidnapping in Colombia is, is like a, a very big wound that, that hasn't closed yet, that is still uh, there because the waves it created are so deep inside victims and victims' families that I think it still has a, an effect on everything we do as a society. My last question to you, Pacho, is looking back at your younger self, that journalist who was very careful yet very reckless and wound up um, getting kidnapped by Pablo Escobar, of all people, sitting in that room day after day for eight months. What would you say to your younger self, to that journalist, to that young man who had been kidnapped and the journey that you've been on? I wouldn't say anything. I'm still the same. I'll give you an anecdote. Look, I've become an advocate here in Colombia, in the US, in Latin America regarding China, Russia, and Iran and the danger they, they create. So I talk on media and all that. And the other day I was talking on the media and my son was there. My son is 27. And I was talking about China and, uh, and the threats of China to democracy and how everything, everything that, that we know that, that, that's coming to, to, to our region. And I finished and my son says, Jesus, dad, are you tired of that? I said, what? You got kidnapped by because you were so upfront. 
now your enemy is going to be Xi Jinping? <laughs> and poof, it hit me. Yeah, I haven't changed. Freedom is my fight. Freedom is my life. And freedom, maybe, it will be my death. Pacho, thank you so much for joining me on When It Mattered and for this fascinating conversation. Itra, thank you. Thank you very much. Francisco Santos Calderon is a journalist, human rights advocate, former vice president of Colombia for eight years, and the former Colombian ambassador to the U.S. under former President Donald Trump. He was kidnapped by Medellin drug cartel leader Pablo Escobar in 1990 and held for eight months. Santos's story and that of nine other prominent Colombians, most of them journalists, kidnapped by Escobar in 1990, became Colombian Nobel Prize novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez's acclaimed nonfiction book, News of a Kidnapping. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.